Good morning. So the Lord is coming back. Amen? And the thing that I'm struck by, and I'm so blessed that Bill shared that scripture, we don't compare notes in worship. We trust the Holy Spirit. We don't have a little powwow and say, Russ, you share this song, and Bill share this scripture, and I'll be teaching on this. Although I do let them know what I'm going to be teaching on. That's pretty easy to figure out because we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. But one of the things I'm struck by that scripture that Bill shared is Jesus could not have made it any more clear that he's coming back again. Now, now here's the thing, and I've tried very hard to make this clear in all of our studies in the book of Revelation. If you're walking away from a study in the book of Revelation, freaked out, scared, and buying dried food for the next 30 years, then you have not gotten the message. Now, I'm not saying you can't buy dry food and you can't prepare and you can't do the precious metals thing. You can do all those things. But listen, listen, your hope can't be in your being able to prepare for the inevitable destruction that comes on this earth. The destruction is going to be so severe that, quite frankly, it won't matter how much gold and silver and dried food you have. So at some point, you're going to have to trust God. So you can trust God today. What I'm encouraged by, and I forget this sometimes, is that 20, 30 years ago, I remember sitting around with old friends. Well, they weren't as old as they are now. But I remember just talking about what's it going to be like in the last days? What's it, what's it going to be like when, you know, they're calling evil good and good evil? What's, what's it going to be like? And, you know, I never thought it would be like this. But here we are. We're years into what you can easily qualify as the darkest of days. Does that mean the Lord can come back tomorrow? Well, the Lord could have came back yesterday. The Lord can come back at any time. But here is our hope. Our hope is not in the circumstances of the next election or court cases or in a candidate. Our hope is actually in Jesus Christ. And I just want you to stop a moment and think, if Jesus said these things were going to happen... Did he say they were going to happen? And they're happening. Are they happening? Then who's in control? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the encouragement, not for the darkness. We don't thank you for the darkness. But you've allowed the darkness, and we thank you for telling us in advance that it would come so that when it finally did start to happen in our lifetime, we're able to look back and believe and have faith. Rather than discouraging us, although it's frightening at times. We're actually encouraged because you said it was going to happen. It's happening. And yes, it's getting worse, but ultimately it's going to get a whole lot better when you return. So here we are living in these dark days. We pray that you would use us, speak to our hearts, encourage us, and that we would come away from a study that talks about your judgment on the earth, actually encouraged not so much because of judgment, but because of mercy. That you've given us time now Not only to set our hearts right with you in our own lives, but to share the gospel message with those that need to know it. To take the time and make the most of the time because the days are evil. To seize every opportunity to do the things that you've called us to do. To share your word. To preach the gospel. We have this opportunity now. May we make the most of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to come back to that theme in just a minute. 
But that's the most important thing I can share with you today. I could probably just sit down and say, that's it. That's what you need to know. But the Lord gave us a little bit more information, and we've been going through the book of Revelation. Of course, Resurrection Sunday, we diverted for one week to talk specifically about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But as we look at the scripture today in Revelation and in where we left off in chapter 16 and in verse 12, we've been looking at the bowls of God's judgment. It's a picture, not meant to be taken literally. What happens, happens, but how it happens is more of a spiritual vision that describes what happens. In the picture, there are seven angels that come out of heaven, out of the temple in God's heaven, in his presence, and they bring with them seven bowls, and the bowls are filled with the wrath of God, which will ultimately complete God's wrath being poured out on the earth. So it's seven stages or seven different areas where God brings his judgment on the earth. We've looked at five. We're going to look at the last two. And one, interestingly enough, the sixth bowl has more to do with preparing the earth for a military conflict that has not happened yet and won't happen until the end of seven years of tribulation. And the other is the final destruction that comes upon the world systems. And it's immediately following that that the Lord will return. In fact, what the sixth bowl does is prepare a conflict we call Armageddon. Prepares that. It all begins to happen. And then really, essentially, the sixth bowl is that conflict, which is less of a conflict and more of a bloodbath. We've looked at it already. This book doesn't always go chronologically. There are little parentheses. We'll see that there's one today as well, where we divert just a little to see some of the details behind the events that are mapped out for us. But let's pick it up now in verse 12, where we read the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. That is, the kings from the east traveling west. I believe you can literally translate that, the kings of the rising sun, because east is where the sun rises. Well, then we're told in verse 13, then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. That's kind of creepy. And they came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, and they are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. So there are things being prepared. Uh, This is, if you play chess, you know, you you set up in your opening, you sort of set the board. And then you have a mid-game where you try to develop your strategy. As you get to the end game, you're closing the deal. We are in the end game. We are in the place where God is bringing about the ultimate judgment that he promised he would bring. It's taken most of the, the, the seven years, but definitely the last three and a half years of this time period we call Daniel's 70th week or the tribulation period of seven years. And this last three and a half years have been really intense. You had seal judgments that set the stage for this demonic world empire. And then you had trumpet judgments that brought God's judgment on the earth. And now you have the bold judgments which complete God's judgment on the earth. Think of it that way. And in this moment, the sixth angel pours out his bowl. That is, God targets the river Euphrates. Why would he do that? Well, 
The water is dried up in the river Euphrates for a specific purpose to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Now, how it's dried up is unimportant. That it's dried up is important. This would greatly affect the geography of the Middle East. When Israel had been attacked over the centuries, indeed, millennia, really, that area of the world, was always attacked from the north because you'd have to cross a rather arid land, even today, a desert, and you'd ultimately make your way to the river Euphrates. And for the most part, for ancient armies, it was impassable. So they'd have to go north where they could cross and come down from the north. That's what Ezekiel tells us will also happen in the last days. So if the river Euphrates wasn't there, or if it was dried up, that would change everything. And God does, in this moment, change everything with a purpose. And we'll see that that purpose is to bring about a conflict, a world conflict, greater than any world war that we could possibly imagine. It's important to note that in the last days, we tend to think of Satan ruling the planet. Destroying the planet, yes, although God will allow a lot of that destruction, the Eurocentric power, which we sometimes refer to as the beast or the kingdom of the beast, is not the only power on the planet. They do take over Israel at a certain point. But there are sections of the Middle East they never gain power over, specifically the areas of Jordan, which were anciently called Moab, Ammon, and Edom. That area is not controlled at all. In fact, we, we believe the Jews will flee there to escape the wrath of the Antichrist. But also, in the east, there will be what I imagine to be the nations that are currently east of the Middle East. So you think of nations like India and China, Japan maybe, maybe not. But the Pacific Rim nations, those nations to the east, will not be under the control of the Antichrist. Oh, they'll be influenced, but not under their control. Now, here's the thing. We live in an age where the, the, the world is fairly united by comparison to 100 years ago. And the world being united with the United Nations and all of the, the you know, the, uh, the Eurocentric power, you know, the, the, this, this European Union. But the world is still very divided, extremely divided, so much so that China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, these nations are not a part of the global community. They're not. So in the last days, there will be Various different factions and powers on the planet, just like there are today. So don't wait for there to be this one world government. We talk about that, but it's really a one Eurocentric world government. And that begins to make sense as we read this, because there are kings from the east. There are other powers on the earth at this time. Many people look at this and say, well, what about the United States? Well, the United States is in a hemisphere that was unknown to the people of biblical times, clearly, so it's, the United States is not mentioned. Anyone who tells you otherwise is making up stories to sell books. How could it be mentioned? Now, if God revealed that there was a new world that would be discovered in the 1400s, that'd be one thing. But the reason we're not mentioned is because we don't factor in to the narrative. What will happen to us is anyone's best guess. At this point, I'm pretty certain if we keep going the way we are, we're going to destroy ourselves. But that has nothing to do with the biblical narrative, other than we're living in the dark days that we live in, and Satan is destroying lives, mutilating little children, killing uh, babies in the womb. Th those kinds of things are happening because Satan destroys. So putting the United States and even the Western Hemisphere aside, 
The thing that we're focused in on is an Eastern power coming into the Middle East to attack a power that came from the West. So there you go. So limit the scope of what we're talking about. Beyond that, we just don't know. We really just don't know. But having said that, that's enough to talk about today. By the way, the Roman Empire considered the Euphrates River a secure barrier against any invasion from the East. They never worried, because the Euphrates River was there, they never worried about being attacked in that way. They knew that the powers would have to come up north of that area and come down into the areas of Turkey and Syria and Lebanon and Israel and Greece. They knew that that would have to be the route because there was just no way to cross this river. It's a very large river. And by the way, it's 1,800 miles long. And at the time, it was 300 to 1,200 yards wide. Take that in. That, that, an ancient army is not going to be able to easily cross a river like that. And even today, that would be a challenge. So having said that, you can imagine that this river being dried up through whatever circumstances God allows will change everything. It's going to expedite the conflict that God has set the stage for. This is the end game. And this is all about the setup. The kings from the east will be able to cross the Euphrates and attack the kingdom of the beast in the area of Israel. Again, Israel has fled at this point, and the Eurocentric power we call the kingdom of the beast, that kingdom will be entrenched in the Middle East, but that Eurocentric power will also be destroyed. So the sixth trumpet affects the Euphrates River. If you remember going back to chapter 9, verses 12 through 21, I want to recap you a little bit. You can check it out again. If you, if you studied with us, you, you remember this. If you didn't, you can read on your own. In chapter 9, verses 12 through 21, we looked at the seventh trumpet. We're here this morning looking at the seventh bowl. But all of the bowls and the trumpets are linked because one begins the judgment and the other completes the judgment. And they're linked. All of them have a very similar approach. So if one trumpet affects the earth, the bowl affects the earth. The sea, the sea, and so on. And we've seen that. And this is no exception. Because when the sixth trumpet was blown by the angel in chapter 9, it's going back some time, the sixth trumpet released four fallen angels who had been bound at the great river Euphrates, interestingly enough. Now, we talked a lot about that, so I don't want to get into all the details, but these fallen angels were, are currently bound by God in an earthly prison that's located in the Middle East. I know that sounds very Indiana Jones, but it's still true. Doesn't mean I'm leading an expedition to go find them. I have no intention to do that. And you couldn't if you tried. But wherever they are, God is going to allow them to be released. Now, the area in or under the Euphrates is the cradle of early civilization. I think most of us know that. Going back to Genesis chapter 2. The Euphrates is mentioned in the Garden of Eden. So, I mean, this is a very old part of civilization if not the oldest, right? And this is also the site of Babel, or the Tower of Babel, where the tower was built, and Babylon is located here in this area. It's the center of all false religions. It's where false religions began. They made their way from there into ancient Greece, into Rome, and throughout the world. And, of course, they went east as well, into the areas where Hinduism and Confucianism and Taoism and Buddhism thrived. So from this center point, Satan promoted false religions which have now infiltrated actually the entire earth. But the gospel's been preached and brought light into darkness. Amen? So that's, this is the beginning. This is the starting point for all of this evil 
So it makes sense that this would be where we're focused today in the account. Now, the Euphrates, as we've seen, will be dried up during the sixth bowl judgment. So that's the focus of the sixth trumpet and the sixth bowl. And this is going to prepare, as we were told in chapter 9, we're told there that this was all about preparing a thoroughfare for a huge Eastern Asian army to attack Israel. So check that out on your own. These four beings, by the way, these angels, they're not evil spirits. We'll see evil spirits in a minute. But these are four fallen angels. They have a physical form. Pretty scary when you think about it. But that'll happen in the last days. And we're told that they were being kept ready for this exact moment in the future. So God has a purpose in letting them out at a specific time. In fact, I I wanted to resist the urge to do this, but I can't. So I'm just going to go back and say here, we just read in chapter 9, it basically says then the four angels in verse 15, who had been kept ready for this very hour and day, and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. That is, what they do ultimately brings about the death of a third of all mankind. The number of the mounted troops, that is the army they gather, and now we're finding out a little bit more about that eastern army, was 200 million. And I heard their number. So, again, all of this about the river Euphrates, which ultimately brings about this army. So there's the conflict being set up. <clears throat> Now, John also saw in a vision three evil spirits come out of the mouth of the dragon, who is Satan, the beast, who is the first beast of Revelation chapter 13, who is a world ruler, a Eurocentric world ruler, who is essentially a, a, a coming leader who is possessed by the devil and is essentially bringing about all the evil he can on the earth with the time that God has allowed during this seven-year period. We believe it will be revealed around the three-and-a-half mark, but ultimately, this Antichrist is a political power. He rules over a kingdom and makes war. But there's also a second beast, which is mentioned in Revelation chapter 13 as well. And this second beast is also referred to as the false prophet. So actually, there are two Antichrists. The beast and the false prophet are both Antichrists. One is a religious leader, a false prophet. The other is a political leader, the beast or antichrist. Call them what you like. They're both working for the devil, and the devil's working through them. So that's what we're dealing with, and all three are mentioned. And these evil spirits that look like frogs were sent out by this unholy trinity. Now, if you've ever seen any of the artwork of the Renaissance or medieval artwork, you'll notice when they picture demons in some of these uh, paintings, uh, they kind of look pretty creepy. Have you noticed that? Not the kind of thing, you. oh, that piece would look lovely in my bedroom. <laughs> I think I'd like to put that right over my bed so when I sleep and I wake up, I see hell and frog-like demons being destroyed by Michael the Archangel. No, I can appreciate the artwork in a museum, not taking it home. But the reason we picture demons in this way is because the Bible actually gives us, other than this, very little understanding of what they might look like. But when we do see this, it cultivates in the imagination, my goodness, what must they look like? I don't want to know. A lot of people watch these movies with exorcisms and demon possession. That's nah, okay. I'm not interested. Why would you do that to yourself? Anyway, <clears throat> these evil spirits that look like frogs were sent out by this unholy trinity of the dragon, beast, and antichrist, all working together to bring about the destruction of mankind. 
And these are spirits of demons. Now, spirits are different. Evil spirits are different than angels. We talked about this when we were in chapter 9, and I tried to make it clear that the spirits of demons are actually, we believe, the spirits of those Nephilim fallen ones, which were the offspring of angels and mankind, that lived before the flood. There's a lot written about this, but the gist of it is this. All of our myths about demigods and Zeus coming down and sleeping with a, you know, women and, and giving birth to demigods like Heracles or Hercules, uh, you know, that stuff has an origin point, And the origin takes place in Genesis chapter 6. You can check that out on your own. But when these fallen angels came down, they're not mortals, so they were, they were bound. And for that reason, I believe there were only four, but they did enough damage. And as a result, they had children. The flood comes, and they're destroyed in the flood. And we believe it's about 120 years later after this event. By that time, there are a lot of these Nephilim, and they are, in fact, drowned in the flood. But what happens to their spirits? They're not human beings. I mean, they're part human. They're sort of hybrid. We believe, most people believe, that the spirits of these ancient Nephilim, the offspring of angels and man, are actually the origin of ghosts, ghouls, goblins, and the such. All the things that we have in our folklore have an origin point. And we believe this is it. And so evil spirits are exactly that, spirits. But they weren't created spirits. They actually started out as beings, hybrid beings. And when they died, their spirits were different in many ways, obviously. And now, what what do they want to do more than anything else? possess a human body. Why, would, why could that possibly be? Because they lost theirs. All that begins to make sense. So separate in your mind evil spirits and demons, which are the same thing, and fallen angels. Fallen angels were created angels. They fell because they rebelled against God. Evil spirits are the spirits of the offspring of men and angels. I know this sounds like something out of a fairy tale, but our fairy tales are based on the truth. Not exactly, you know, not precisely, but as stories were told going back into ancient times, they reflect on a truth. And the truth comes from God's word. The fairy tales and the stories just talk about the things that happened in the past, adding a little flavor and, and storytelling elements. Okay? You're with me. Say amen. Has Pastor Tim lost his mind. No, I have not. Yes, I believe in demons. Jesus cast them out. So if you don't believe in demons, then... You've got some explaining to do. You really have to figure out what does the scripture mean then when it talks about evil spirits. So these particular spirits, I can't tell you a lot about demons. I'm not a demonologist. I don't care to study that thing. But as I look at this, I do understand that they were spirits of demons that perform miraculous signs on their behalf. Now, understand there are miracles that spirits can create or used to deceive mankind that aren't miracle miracles, like the way God does miracles. They just appear to be miracles. Like, for example, do you remember, um, if you've ever seen any period pieces, uh, you know that going back 100, 150 years ago, seances and spiritism became very, very popular in our culture. Especially around the Elizabethan, or no, not Elizabethan, no, Victorian era, you had a lot of uh, people who were dabbling in the occult, Ouija boards, and they'd have these seances, and it became a craze, it became a fad. And it's still somewhat popular today, but a lot of people were getting into spiritism. And they would go to these seances, and a lot of it was just parlor tricks and illusion. 
But, you know, if you're sitting in something like that, and may you never even be near something like that, and a glass suddenly flies off the table and crashes across the room, you say, it's kind of miraculous. Yeah, you just can't see that that frog-like demon picked it up and threw it across the room because you, you don't have the eyes to see it. It's not really a miracle, but it appears as a miracle. It appears as something miraculous and supernatural to us. So don't get into this thinking that they can do what God does. No, they deceive you into thinking they can do what God does. For example, I pray to God you never, ever go to one of those psychic reading places. But stay away from that. We drove past one yesterday. My wife and I, she was praying, like, God destroy it. And you know what? Good. May, may the people be safely at home when it burns to the ground. So if you go to a fortune teller, and, and, and I hope you never did, but if you had, and you, and you found that there was some truth to it, it's only because demons have the ability to get knowledge that you can't get because they have supernatural access to things. And then they present it, and of course you're like, how could the, how could the clairvoyant or the spiritist know that? Well, a demon whispered in her ear, or his ear. So don't be deceived by demons, but that's what they do. They go out and they deceive with these quote-unquote, miraculous signs. They also go out to the kings of the whole earth to gather them for battle. Now, we're beginning to see some of that in our world today. We're seeing nations get real bloodthirsty, provocative saber-rattling. We're seeing the nations of the East especially start to look for conflict. Now, this has been the case from the beginning of time, but we're seeing it ratchet up. Sometimes it becomes really intense, and then it dies down. Sometimes we think we're going to war, and then we're making peace. Aside from that, which is probably going to happen right up until the end, the pendulum will swing. We're going to go to war? No, we have peace. But the scripture tells us when they say peace, peace, sudden destruction comes. So a day will come where a conflict of this magnitude will be set up. God will allow it. God will set the stage. But the world will walk into this conflict with evil in their hearts, and demons will be the ones convincing people to go to war. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I think demons do a pretty good job today convincing world powers to go to war. Has anything good ever come from a war? Oh, Pastor Tim, we had to fight World War II. Yes, perhaps. But did any good come of it? Is the world a better place? Was it the war to end all wars? Did it work? Does it ever? Do little children and innocent people suffer? Does war ever accomplish anything good? I I got news for you. I don't think that God wants anything to do with war. Now, you might say, oh, but Pastor Tim, remember in the Old Testament, you know? Remember the evil people? Okay. When God specifically reveals in his word in that way that there needs to be a conflict, yes. In this particular instance, he allows it, yes. Other than that, I would err on the side of peace. He's the prince of peace. I would err on the side of not going into conflict unless absolutely necessary. But what is it that our world, and especially the military-industrial complex, just loves for people to die in conflict? Where does that come from? These demonic spirits are whispering in these leaders' ears, and greed and power and all of the things that people are influenced by bring about the death of millions and millions of people. There's nothing good about that, and there never will be as far as I'm concerned. So that's what they do. And this final global conflict will be called the great day of God Almighty, not because God is in favor of the conflict, 
But because when he brings judgment on those that would bring conflict, it's just and it's right, it's appropriate, and it's according to his time. Amen? All right, we'll see more of that, obviously, over the next few weeks. Now, I get to a verse, and it's verse 15, and it says, and and it echoes what Bill shared in the announcements. In verse 15, we have a parenthesis. This verse, like, literally has very little to do with everything we just talked about, but it's placed here for a reason. Because we're reading this, and we're not living in the time that we're talking about. We're living now. This verse is a parenthetical verse that speaks to us today. Very powerful verse. Jesus says, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him. That is, he's prepared. So that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. When I say this has very little to do with what we're talking about, it has almost nothing to do with the narrative. It's parenthetical. And it's put there, so in the midst of all this judgment, as we're looking forward, as the church of Jesus Christ, we're recognizing we don't need to worry about what takes place in the last days. We need to be concerned about what's taking place today. Yes, we can look forward, but we need to live in the present. And in the present, there's one thing that's more important than anything else. Are you ready? Because you don't have to be raptured to meet Jesus tomorrow. One day we're all going to stand before him. Every one of us. And every knee will bow, every tongue confess. And the only question you need to answer in your heart is, am I ready? How are you going to be ready? Do you know Jesus? He's coming like a thief. Now, when we see the Lord come in judgment, he doesn't come like a thief. He comes like a warrior. So what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about something completely different, actually. This parenthetical warning is placed between the sixth and the seventh seal. It's sandwiched in there. And I want to remind you, and we saw this already, there was a first parenthesis that was placed between the sixth and the seventh uh, uh, seal. We had the sixth and seventh bowls. Uh, We had the sixth and seventh seals, the sixth and seventh trumpets, and the sixth and seventh plague or bowls. So this parenthesis here is between the bowls. Also, the sixth and seventh trumpet had a parenthesis. It was chapters 10 and part of chapter 11. All of chapter 7 was between the 6th and 7th seal. This third and final parenthesis is placed, and it's very small, but it's placed between the 6th and 7th bowl. There's a pattern here. What's the pattern? Do you remember in the scriptures the pattern of sevens? Comes up a lot. When God created the heavens and the earth, he created it in six days and he rested on the seventh. And that's the Sabbath. There's always a pattern of sevens in the scripture, and there's three patterns of sevens that I mentioned. Seals, trumpets, and bowls. And if I got you confused, I'm sorry. There's a lot of things to say there. But in between the sixth and seventh bowl, you have another parenthesis. What does that mean? God is always looking to bring us into a Sabbath rest with him for all eternity. Before he brings judgment, he shows mercy. He shows kindness. He doesn't want to bring judgment until it's absolutely necessary. And there he is pleading with us in the middle of this little section here, before the final judgment comes, before it's too late, telling us, and I'll read it again, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. That's your warning. And it comes between the sixth and the seventh of each of these judgments. So you understand, before God brings his ultimate judgment, he wants you to be ready. 
He wants you to repent. And if you haven't already, then you're not ready. If you haven't given your heart to Jesus, then these things, the seventh of each of those judgments falls upon you. And, but it doesn't have to be that way. You know, listen, if, if I told you, and, and with the crazy weather we had, who knows, that tomorrow it's going to be 20 degrees, you'd probably say, oh, yeah, April in New Jersey. Right now you're freezing in the church. You're thinking, why won't they turn that air conditioning off? I see some of you guys putting on your shawls and everything. Well, bring them then because some of us are hot. But some days we'll have the heat on, right? And some days, but if I told you it's going to be 20 degrees tomorrow and you went to work and you didn't bring your coat, whose fault is that? It's not God's fault. Check your weather app. I don't know what it's going to be like tomorrow. I check it every day. And that determines whether I bring an umbrella or wear a coat or throw a sweatshirt in the car because the temperature is going to drop. See, when you're warned about something, you're supposed to prepare. What does it mean to prepare? Your heart. You can have food for the next 20 years, but if your heart isn't ready, you're not prepared for the end. See, a lot of Christians are spending a lot of time preparing physically, and that's okay until it isn't. No amount of preparation can prepare you for God's judgment unless you give your heart to Jesus Christ. That's the only preparation that I'm concerned about these days. Are you prepared for God's judgment? Do you belong to Jesus Christ? Well, he tells us in this parenthesis, which I've outlined, he speaks to those who are alive and anticipating his imminent return for the church. That is us. This verse deals with us today and has dealt with every member of the church from the time it was written till today. He warns us that he will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Now, when a thief tries to rob you, if he sent you a text five minutes before he came into your house, you'd have your shotgun out. You'd be waiting for him. You'd be ready. You'd be like, bring it. But that's not what Jesus says. You're not going to know, so you need to be prepared. He promises blessing. The word blessing means how happy. Happiness, blessing. Some people say, well, the Bible doesn't promise happiness. It promises holiness. Oh, it promises holiness, which brings happiness. If you're happy and you know it, (laughs) clap your hands. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, listen, is it okay to be happy as a Christian? I hope so. I'm pretty happy. I'm not happy about everything. But if you go through life, well, you know, I'd be happy, but the end is near. Some of you guys go in and out of the city. When I was young, you'd go in the city, see people with sandwich boards, and inevitably it said the end is near. Yeah, that's an encouraging message. Yeah, I want to talk to that guy. And then sometimes you hear these preachers and I don't know, maybe it's because my dad yelled a lot when we were kids. I hear somebody, like, I get a little intense. I know I raise my voice a little bit. But if I hear somebody scream, I tune out. I don't want to be screamed at. I don't care how good what you're saying is. I don't want to be yelled at. I don't want to be screamed at. I don't want to be talked to that way. And the end is near as a message I can understand in the context of God is closer. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's more important than the end is near. I don't think we have anybody here today, but I know some Christians, every time you talk to them, it's the end is near. I call them chicken little Christians because the sky is always falling. 
Yes, it's a bad world. We started out by talking about that. I know that. But are you happy? Well, I can't be happy. The world is, you know, this, that, the liberals, the progressives. I can't be happy. You know, blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of what? The godly. Blessed. Blessed. You can be blessed in this world, and the word literally means, oh, how happy. So don't tell me you can only have joy. Joy is great. I'll take joy every day. But you can have happiness, too. Now, you're not going to be happy every day, but blessed is the person who, as it says here, stays awake. Not woke. See, because woke is really asleep. Awake, not awoke. Those who are awake are those that can, with open eyes, see what's really going on in the world. The demonic activity, the craziness, the corruption. But they don't spend their evenings screaming at the television. I told you, I stopped watching those news stations. And I agree with just about everything they say. But you know what? I just don't want to be miserable. If the Lord's going to come back in the next week, I want my last week to be as happy as it can be before I go into eternal joy. I read the news, you know that. But I don't want to be amped up. I don't want to live my life miserable. And you know what? The world is looking at us and they're saying, why would I want to be a Christian? They're miserable. They're always yelling and screaming and talking hate. And and I'm not saying that preaching righteousness is hate, but sometimes we get a little hateful about preaching righteousness, if we're going to be honest. It's love. We don't tolerate sin. We call sin out. But wait a minute. Where's the incentive? I'm going to tell you something. There have been people, even recently, even just this last week, who have come to visit our church. People we love and care about. And the hallmark of their experience, they were happy to be here. Doesn't mean everybody gets saved. I accept that. People have to make a decision. I'm kind of a live and let live guy. You know, you, you want to you continue. What am I going to do? It's your choice. God gave you free will. Why should I take it away or try to? But when the experience of someone who's not a Christian coming to churches, they walk away and they had a great experience and they were happy to be here, score. Because if we're not showing them the joy of the Lord and happiness in our lives, why would they ever want to give their heart to Jesus Christ? So Jesus says you're blessed if you stay awake. You're aware of what's going on. So it's funny, these people... I hope I'm not insulting anyone, but 24 hours a day watching YouTube videos seem very angry to me. Oh, they're awake. Oh, they know everything that's going on. They know stuff I I never even dreamed up, but they're very miserable. Listen, that is not who we're called to be. They will know you by your love, one for another. I've said enough. So, that's why I'm a pretty happy guy. To be honest, not about everything that's going on in the world. But God is blessing me because I'm awake. I'm in his word. I'm hearing from him. I'm worshiping him. I'm serving him. I'm serving others. Why wouldn't I be filled with joy and happy? So Jesus warns us. But he also promises blessing to those who are prepared. So are you prepared? Those who are spiritually awake and not asleep. Those are those who will be blessed and happy. But those that are properly dressed, we're told, and will not be naked or shamefully exposed. What does that mean? Well, that's symbolic language because garments in the scriptures are are used as pictures 
of spiritual and practical righteousness. They are used to describe spiritual righteousness. Now, when we talk about garments in the scripture, we have to go to a couple verses. I'm going to turn, just read it for you. I'll turn in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 says this. Paul writes, For all of you were baptized into Christ, uh, all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself or yourselves with Christ. What does that mean? Well, we are given the righteousness of Jesus as a garment to put on. Now, when you put a garment on, people might say, you look great in that garment. Do they mean the garment looks great? Well, the garment brings that look, but the garment is external to you. You wear a really nice jacket, you take it off, you're no longer wearing it, but we're told to put on Christ. And so the garment is his righteousness. It doesn't belong to us, but when we put it on, we look good. We are good. We're righteous in Christ. Notice that's imputed righteousness, not your righteousness. Your righteousness is what? What did Isaiah tell us? Filthy rags. But you put on Christ's righteousness, his garment, if you will. We're called to put on the nature of Jesus in practical holiness. That is, be like Jesus. How do we do that? Through the power of the Spirit. But there's another scripture I want to read for you. And it's in Ephesians 4, uh, verse 20. Paul writes, you, however, did not come to know Christ. That way, surely you have heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in, the, in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, we have this picture of a, almost like a garment. You put on Christ. That's what we do when we give our hearts to Jesus Christ. His nature becomes our nature, external to us, yet imputed to us. So it's his garment, It's his righteousness, but now it belongs to us. It's been given to us. Imputed to us is the word we use in theology, but that's that's the same thing. Understand, that's that's what it means to be properly clothed. In in our scripture today, we see very clearly that Jesus wants us to not only stay awake, but keep our clothes, stay dressed. That is to be prepared, right? Right? But we know what that means because being naked and shamefully exposed is what the person who doesn't put on Christ can be described as. The righteousness is filthy rags. They're not properly clothed. We are warned not to be found without a covering. Now, does that sound familiar to anyone? Let's go back a few books, like all of them. Let's go back to the first book of the Bible. Sin comes into the world. Adam and Eve realize they've sinned. They realize they're sinners. And what's the first thing they want to do? Cover up. You know, the word for atonement means to cover. They literally want to cover up their sin. They want to cover up their bodies because they are embarrassed by who they are. We don't need to be embarrassed because we have Christ's righteousness to cover us. Not fig leaves. And by the way, what did God give those two individuals, Adam and Eve in the garden? Skins of animals. Hmm. Sacrifice. The very first sacrifice. Sacrifice is what brings atonement, the covering for sin. Oh, I could talk all day about Jesus and never mention his name, just the Old Testament, because it all points to him. 
It's been called the world's greatest hymn book because it's all about him. So, as we continue, I actually thought for a minute I might get through the sixth and the seventh trumpets today. But there's too much here. We're in no rush. If the Lord comes back before we finish, we'll figure it out on the way. <laughs> so, we certainly don't want to try to provide our own covering like Adam and Eve. We have to accept Christ's covering. Are you ready? Because that's the most important question today. Not evil spirits, fallen angels, you know, not the river Euphrates. Anyway, we get to verse 16, and we'll stop here. It says, then, that, now, that was the parentheses. We go back to where we left off in verse 14. It says, then they gather the kings, remember those evil spirits, gather the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, what we learn here, John saw those three evil spirits gather the kings together, and he, he told us exactly where they would be gathered. Armageddon is a place. It's a, it's a location. We know where it is. It's the Valley of Megiddo. It's frequently associated with decisive battles. It is a large battlefield. And it's interesting, you would need a large battlefield for this many people to come into conflict. In fact, in history, over 200 battles have been fought in this region. 200 that we know of. From Tuthmosis III in 1468 B.C. to Lord Allenby of the British in 1917, this is a perfect battlefield. And it will be in the last days. Even the Bible has examples of battles being fought here. In Judges 5, Deborah was victorious over Sisera there in Megiddo. Gideon in Judges 7 was victorious over the Midianites in this location. And one time, King Josiah was defeated by Pharaoh in the same place. Armageddon is also predicted by the prophet Zechariah in chapter 12, verse 11, to be a place of end times mourning. So, we may not know everything, but we know where this will happen. We know that the kings will come from the east. We know that they will cross the dried up river Euphrates. We know they'll come together. We know a third of mankind will be destroyed. But what does that really get you in the end? All that knowledge, what does it do? I mean, it it helps you to recognize what's going to happen so you can prepare your heart. You know, the most important verse is 15. The Lord's coming again, amen? And for us who are alive right now, that's not going to be him coming in judgment. That's going to be him coming to rapture us, catch us up into heaven, to where we can spend all eternity with him and forever be with the Lord. I'm going to leave you with something a little encouraging, than, a little bit more encouraging than the Valley of Megiddo or Armageddon, uh, which will ultimately be a bloodbath, and we will see that. Um, what we want to do is go to First uh, Thessalonians. I'm just going to read this for you very quickly. In uh, chapter 4, oh, that's 1 Timothy. Okay, so 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. These are Paul's words. One of the first books he wrote. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. Or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. He is risen We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, 
with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. That's my hope. It's Jesus Christ. Verse 18, Paul says, therefore encourage each other with these words. Are you encouraged? Say amen. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. If we're encouraged, then no room for this nonsense. No, no walking around the sky is falling. Stop it. The banks are failing. The world is coming to an end. If I hear you talking like that around here, that's negative talk. Is it true? Maybe. I don't care. What's more true to me is that Christ is coming again. That he died and rose again and he's coming again. And, and, and here, here's the thing. Negative talk brings negative heart. Negative minds. I don't want to go all like Eastern on you here, but you know what? How you think in your heart, that's who you are. So we need to cultivate an attitude of thankfulness, gratitude, blessedness or happiness and joy. Because if the world is going to find the truth, that's how they're going to find it. By seeing in us the Christ that we preach. And he's coming again. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We are so grateful for an encouraging message. Who would have thought a bold judgment could bring about encouragement? Well, we're not encouraged by the judgment. We're encouraged by your word. That tells us that you're coming again and that you love us so you died on the cross for our sins. And we need only respond to that great sacrifice on our behalf that our sins would be covered that we would be saved. Lord, we thank you. May each heart here today know the importance of hearing those words. May we read over verse 15 several times this week and prepare our hearts knowing that you are truly going to come again. And it will happen at a time where we won't know. We have to be prepared now. We can't be prepared then. We have to be prepared today. Today's the acceptable day of salvation. I pray that every heart would give their hearts to you. Every person here today, where we know you came and you died on the cross for our sins and you rose again and you are coming again to judge the living and the dead, but you're bringing salvation to us and to this earth. Lord, encourage us this week and always. And may we encourage others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.